0: Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis, chapter 13. Chapter 13. As we are going to look again at this passage, with an eye this morning towards the person of Lot. Lot. In fact, I've entitled both this morning's message and tonight's message a lot of trouble because we are going to be learning, in a sense, from lots failures in this passage and the passage we will study this evening as we continue our verse-by-verse study of these chapters in Genesis. Let's begin reading in Genesis chapter 13 and verse 1. Genesis 13 and verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him, into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt and the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east, and thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked great sinners against the Lord. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Like I said this morning, I want to draw our attention to this man named Lot. It seems that his his father died while he was still young. Then his grandfather died. And so it was his uncle Abram, who took care of him. When Abram came to Canaan out of obedience to God, Lot came with him. When Abram went down to Egypt, Lot was with him. And when, by God's mercy, Abram returned to Canaan, Lot came with him. But by this point, Lot appears to be a fully grown adult man with a family of his own. And he has flocks and herds of his own. He has herdsmen. He has become a wealthy man. In fact, he and Abram have become so wealthy and so full of possessions and servants and animals, they cannot continue dwelling together on the same piece of land. They, They must separate. They must go in different directions. And Abram, believing God's promises shows love and kindness and generosity to his nephew by saying, you have the first pick. You choose which direction you would like to go, and I will go and the other. And so Lot has a choice to make. He can stay in the land of Canaan, live on this land, or he can travel east to the Jordan Valley, the more attractive, the more fertile land. What should he have done? Well, it seems to me, you see, if you agree, you might not, but it, it seems to me that the right thing for Lot to have done would have been to take the least attractive of the two lands. That he should have stayed in Canaan and given the better land to Abram. Now, why do I say that? I say that first because he was the nephew and Abram was the uncle. It would have been proper and good for Lot to honor his uncle, especially after all that Abram had done for him through the years, by giving his uncle the better land. The fifth commandment, you know the fifth commandment, I hope you do. It teaches us to honor our father and our mother. Well, Abram had acted as a father to Lot. And yet here, in this moment at least, it seems to me that Lot is not honoring him as he ought. Second, I think Lot should have taken the less attractive land because it is right for us to put the needs of others above our own. Philippians 2 verse 3 says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant. Than yourselves. Now, by the way, that's exactly how Abram is acting. He had every right to say, Lot, I'm going to take the land I choose, and you get what's left. But rather than doing that, Abram humbles himself, puts his nephew first, and allows Lot to have the first choice. But Lot does not respond the same way, he himself does not seem to respond in humility. Philippians two four says, "Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interest of others." Abram here is being mindful of Lot's interests, but Lot does not appear to be being mindful of Abram's. Lot seems to have chosen the Jordan Valley because he was thinking of what would be best for his own prosperity. He was thinking like a businessman. And this seems to have trumped all else. Verse 10 of chapter 13 says that Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. That's like the garden of Eden. Like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. So Lot saw the features of this land. He saw that they would be beneficial to him and his family and his herds and his flocks. And that appears to be what drove him into making the decision he made. We're told that Lot traveled east to the Jordan Valley, as far as Sodom, and settled among the cities of the valley. In those three verses, verses 11, 12, and 13, two words should just grab your attention if you know your genesis. In verses 11, 12, and 13, two words should stick out. The first word that should stick out is the word east. Do you see that word in verse 11? He traveled east. Do you see it? If you remember what we've already seen in Genesis, you know that for whatever reason, and I have no explanation for why this is, but in Genesis, this word east always serves as a sign of bad things. Adam and Eve when they were exiled out of the Garden of Eden, were sent east. We are specifically told that it was east of Eden that wicked Cain built his city. The builders of the Tower of Babel came from the east. And now Lot is traveling eastward, away from the promised land. And so already there's sort of a hint. Bad things are coming. But much more prevalent than that word is the word Sodom. In case we miss the point, we have verse 13, spell it out for us. The men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So why in the world would Lot move in that direction? What would move Lot to move towards Sodom? What was he thinking? It was not as far as we can tell, that Lot liked the sinful culture of Sodom. Not at all. In fact, before we start calling Lot a, a wicked unbeliever, we need to remember what 2 Peter 2, 7-8 says about Lot. Listen to what the Apostle Peter says about Lot. Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. In other words, Lot had a heart of faith towards the true God so that at least his conscience was constantly being tormented by what he saw and by what he heard in these places. So if that's who Lot was, why did he choose to go in this direction? Well, it appears that he was looking at things from a material perspective. And he allowed that to outweigh his spiritual perspective. At least here, it appears that he is more concerned about what he can gain materially than the spiritual dangers that might await him and his family reminds me a little of those people who are quick to take a job offer in another town because it pays more money before even checking to see if there's a solid like-minded church that's going to be there waiting for them when they get there. By accepting the job, they, they gain more materially, but they may have put themselves in a situation where they and their family are going to starve spiritually. It would have been one thing had Lot gone into the Jordan Valley with a a keen awareness of the spiritual dangers that would await him and his wife and his children and his herdsmen as they moved in this direction. Had he gone into the Jordan Valley with with a sense of, I am going to take action to make sure my family and my own soul is protected. But that's not what we see here. Had he been on his guard, had he been asking for God's help, working to ensure that he and his family would not give way to the patterns of the wicked men around them, perhaps things would have turned out differently. But instead, we find Lot becoming more and more encaptured by the culture around him. We see this as a progression in the chapters. In chapter 13, he moves to the vicinity. Of Sodom, he, he moves his family into the region of Sodom, towards Sodom. But look at chapter 14, verse 12. Chapter 14, verse 12. Where's Lot now? He's in Sodom. He has moved into the city itself. And then, after everything that takes place in chapter 14, we get all the way to chapter 19... And Lot is sitting at the gate as a citizen of the city and even calls the Sodomites his brothers. And by that point, Lot has become so morally compromised that he's willing to offer his daughters to the men of the city to be ravaged by them. Apart from God's mercy... Lot's fate would have been the same as all the people in Sodom when that city was utterly destroyed. And he would have deserved it. And All of that begins here in chapter 13 when he looks at the Jordan Valley with the eye of a businessman but not with the eye of a discerning follower of God. Friends, let us be aware of what the love of money and the love of material gain can do to us. And so here's the main doctrine I want to impress on us from these verses this morning. We looked at these verses last week, so another truth this morning. I want to focus on this truth, that the desire for wealth, the desire for prosperity can lead us into real spiritual danger. In fact, I've been struck by how prevalent this truth is in the passages we've been studying. I'd never noticed before until these last couple of weeks that this theme of the temptation of material gain is actually pervasive in these early chapters of Abram's life of faith. Remember last week at the end of Genesis 12? Abram was willing to have his own wife taken away from him and made a part of Pharaoh's harem And why was Abram okay with this? What would make this man okay with letting his wife be taken away from him and placed into a harem? Well, at least in part, it appears that he was receiving material gain from Pharaoh. That Pharaoh gave him a dowry. That he was given great riches. And therefore he compromised himself spiritually, he did harm to his wife because of the temptation of material gain. So let me make three points that I hope will write this truth into your soul, to be wary of the love of material gain. Number one, me say this one first: the inordinate love, the inordinate love of material gain is a real and present danger to your soul. The inordinate love of material gain is a real and present danger to your soul. Do you know what the word inordinate means? In case you don't, let me me explain. The word inordinate simply means something that is out of order or out of proportion. If I have a swimming pool and it can hold 200 gallons of water, and I try and fill it with a thousand gallons of water. I am seeking to use an inordinate amount of water to fill my swimming pool, an improper amount. So also, it is possible for you and I to love material gain and the possessions we have or the possessions we want inordinately in a way that is improper. There is a place for money and possessions in the Christian life. There is a place for enjoying God's good gifts. There is a place for taking care of our families and ensuring that they have what they need. There is a place for pursuing wealth so that you can then invest that wealth into the kingdom of God and the work of missions and the building up of God's church. Money and possessions not only have a place in our lives, money and possessions are an essential part of our lives. You cannot live in society without them. Furthermore, if we are serious about following Christian principles, it should not at all be that uncommon for us to see some of God's people being blessed with material gain. In any workplace, it ought to be the Christian worker whose work ethic shines most brightly. It should be a given that the followers of Jesus will work in their workplaces in such a way that when it comes time for promotion, when it comes time for advancement, they stand forth as candidates. Christian businessmen, Christian workers should have shown themselves to be people of their word, people who are serious about showing respect to their superiors, kindness to those under them, and a strong desire to do all things well. And if Christians live this way, they will sometimes find themselves in high positions in society, or blessed with wealth. This is why Proverbs 14.24 says, The crown of the wise is their wealth. The Bible is not against wealth. But it is against the inordinate love of wealth. The same Bible that says, The crown of the wise is their wealth, also says, Riches do not profit on the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Proverbs 11.4 Or Proverbs 11.28 Whoever trusts in riches will fall but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Wealth and the pursuit of material gain must be kept in its proper place. And yet we are prone to loving these things far out of proportion to what they deserve. This is a danger to all classes of people. This is a real and present danger to wealthy people, and this is a real and present danger to poor people. Rich people can have their hearts enslaved to a love for the wealth they have, and both rich and poor people can have their hearts enslaved to the desire for what they don't have. And if you consider yourself financially poor, don't think this danger doesn't apply to you. It does. This is a danger which mankind has known since the beginning of history. All the way back in the Garden of Eden, what was the ploy that Satan used to bring about man's fall? Did he not draw Eve's attention to something she did not have? God had given them everything, the garden and all its bounty. God said, you can eat from every tree. There was only one. But the one thing she didn't have, the serpent held forth for her. He said, look at it. Don't you want that? Just as Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the beauty of the Jordan Valley, so we're told that Eve looked upon the fruit and saw that it was a delight to the eyes. The desire for that which we do not have has consumed man from the very beginning. This is why we have that saying that we use sometimes, the grass is always greener on the other side. Right? What we don't have always seems better to us than what we do have. We're never satisfied with where we are. We always want something more and then something more and then something more and then something more. Ecclesiastes 5.10 Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. And friends, this is a danger that you face right now. And not just adults. This is a danger our children face. They face this constantly. Researchers tell us that most children have seen more than a million commercials by the time they're age 20. We are lambasted by temptation on every side, urging us to want this, to want that. And we must teach our children and we must teach ourselves about the dangers of greed. So this is a real and present danger. Number two, the consequences of this sin, of loving wealth and the desire for wealth too much, are grave. The consequences of this sin are grave. Justin, what is so wrong about loving material things? Why are you acting as though loving wealth or having this desire for stuff is such a deadly thing? Friends, I must speak strongly about this because the Bible speaks strongly about this. The inordinate love of material gain will lead you away from God and will ultimately bring you to ruin and destruction. Take that to heart. Is Lot not an example of this? Was it not his desire to dwell on this well watered land that led him into making poor spiritual choices that almost cost him his life? And think about what it did cost him. Think about his daughters and what happens to them. Think about his wife as a pillar of salt. Lot, how did you get here? How did you bring your family into such a situation? Was it not that he allowed material gain to be more important to him than the spiritual care of his own soul and those of his family? Listen carefully, church, to 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10. Listen carefully. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not for money, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Listen to those descriptions. The inordinate love of wealth causes people to fall into a snare. You know what a snare is, right? It gets a hold of you like a like a mouse caught in a mousetrap and it it can't get away. This is what our possessions can do to us. We think we own our stuff, but if we're not careful, our stuff can own us. Our hearts can become so attached to the things we own that suddenly rather than doing making decisions, rather than making decisions according to what God would have us do, suddenly we're making decisions about how am I going to care for this? How am I going to protect the stuff that I own? How am I going to add to the stuff that I own? You think of those people who lost all hope and committed suicide when they lost their wealth in the Great Depression because their hearts were so tied to what they had. They became so ensnared to their wealth that when it was gone, so was their will to live. There's an old account of John Wesley being invited to to tour the estate of a proud plantation owner John Wesley and this man rode their horses for hours around the property, and they still only saw a portion of it. At the end of the day, as they were having dinner together, the plantation owner asked, Well, Mr. Wesley, what do you think? Wesley replied, I think you're going to have a hard time leaving all this. Can you relate to that? Do you know what it is to to have your heart attached to your stuff? And often, it isn't that we're ensnared to what we have. It's that we're ensnared to what we don't. We're ensnared to the desire for more. There is a reason that we're told that the average American spends six hours a week shopping. Only 40 minutes a week playing with their kids. Shopping is a national pastime. It brings happiness to our hearts to walk aisle after aisle and to look at all the stuff we want. And we want it so bad we'll get it even when we don't have the money for it. Which is why I saw this week where more Americans had declared bankruptcy in a year than had graduated college. We've lost all self-control as a people because we have this inordinate desire for material gain. Remember the rich young ruler. Right? Remember how he came to Christ. Listen, Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. And then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich man enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Why is it so hard for people with possessions to be saved? Because our hearts are so prone to love our stuff more than our God. Our hearts are so inclined to become attached to the things we can see rather than the more glorious things that we can't see. Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. How easy is that? Can a camel go through the eye of a needle? You have to have a gigantic needle or a tiny camel. It cannot. This is a warning to the rich. And I want to be very blunt. I've said this before. I hope you know it by now. All of us in this room are rich. Compared with others in America, you might think you are relatively poor... But compared to the people on planet earth, a great number of which, 50%, live on less than $2 a day, the poorest people in America are rich compared to the rest of the world. And so this warning about how hard it is, indeed how impossible it is, for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven is for us. And the disciples heard it and they said to Jesus, Who then can be saved? And Jesus answered, with man, this is impossible. Our hearts are so depraved that if it's up to us to love God more than our stuff, it's impossible. We can't do it. And so thankfully Jesus said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. In other words, the only way that we can be saved That is that we can truly trust God, love God, find our security in God more than in all the stuff of this world is by His amazing grace coming to us and making it happen. If God does not intervene in His mercy, If God does not cause our hearts to love Him and the things we can't see more than all the stuff that we can see, our gods will be golf. Our gods will be the we. Our gods will be fashion. Our gods will be sports cars. Our gods will be whatever it would be for you. And we'd be just as pagan as the people of the Old Testament. Paul uses the picture in 1 Timothy 6 of people piercing themselves with many pains. Every time we become too devoted to wealth, too devoted to something we own, too devoted to the pursuit of things, it's like taking a spear and thrusting it into your soul. And apart from God's grace, we would commit spiritual suicide a thousand times over. Had God not intervened in Lot's life, In Sodom, as he did, there's a good chance Lot would have been eternally lost. Only because God had determined to keep his people saved did God sweep in and ultimately preserve not only Lot's life, but Lot's soul. And God uses means in our day to help preserve his people against this great danger. And so here's my last point. God has given us remedies to fight off this danger. He has given us means to defeat this plague of greed. and There are many, but I'm only going to mention two. The first means that God has given us is his own precious promises. Is this not what allowed Abram to be humble and to give the better land to Lot if he wanted it? It was because he believed that it was all one day going to be his and his offspring forever. That he would be an heir of the world, as Paul says in Romans. In light of that promise, the allure of the Jordan Valley meant little to him. He was happy to dwell on whichever land he needed for the time being, but Abram's heart was not caught up in the land. His heart was caught up in the great glorious promises that God had made to him about what would one day be his. Later, in fact we're going to see it uh, maybe next week I think, uh, how the wicked king of Sodom comes to Abram and tries to give to Abram a great deal of material wealth. And in the face of all of these riches that Abram is being offered by the king of Sodom, Abram says, no, I will not take them. He refuses the offer of this wicked king. Most of us, looking over all of this wealth that is being given to us by this wicked man, would have said, how can I refuse? If somebody wants to give me gold, I'll take it. But Abram in no way wanted to be indebted to this man. And so the allure of all of these riches did not win over his heart because his heart was wrapped up and his God and the glorious promises God had given him. Friends, when we consider what is ahead for us, when we consider, yes, the glory of the new heavens and the new earth, yes, the streets of gold, when we consider those things, but especially when we consider living in the presence of God forever, having our hearts fully satisfied by Him, how can we allow the things of this world to possibly steal our hearts away from that? It's like... The illustration we've used a hundred times is like trading the Thanksgiving feast for a Snicker bar, right? Or C.S. Lewis's illustration is trading the ocean for a mud puddle. If we keep our eyes on who our God is and what He has promised us, our hearts will not be so quickly allured by the junk of this world. Why do I call it junk? What did Paul call it? Rubbish compared to knowing Christ. Moreover, every day we live is another day closer to our death and another day closer to the day when everything we own we will lose. When all of the material wealth we've gained in this life will be left behind because we will not take it with us. We must see that it is Jesus. It is Jesus not wealth or possessions that will ultimately satisfy us and give us peace. Let me remind you briefly of the testimony of some of the richest men of the past. W.H. Vanderbilt, the care of 200 million is enough to kill anybody. There is no pleasure in it. John Jacob Astor, I am the most miserable man on earth. John D. Rockefeller, I have made my millions and they have brought me no happiness. Henry Ford, I was happier when I was doing a mechanic's job. Church, wealth is a shallow well that does not satisfy. It is fleeting. Wealth in this life can come and it can be gone. In chapter 13, Lot's wealthy. In the middle of chapter 14, Lot's lost everything. Welp this fleeting. Which is why Paul charged Timothy to tell his people something. And in doing so, Paul charged pastors to tell their churches something. And I want you to listen carefully. This is 1 Timothy 6.17. Listen to what pastors have been charged to tell their people. As for the rich in this present age, that's us, whether you know it or not. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Where do you find your greatest security? Do you feel secure today? Because you know you have money in a savings account and if bad things happen tomorrow, you have some protection there? Or do you feel security today because you've entrusted yourself into the hands of an almighty God who loves you? Were you to lose everything you have, and I mean were you to lose everything you have and all it was was you and the shirt on your back, would you still be able to walk with a sense of joy because you know your God is with you. He is a refuge and a strength and an ever present help in trouble. Those of you who are gainfully employed, what drives you in your work? Are you driven by a confidence that God is going to work through you and your work to show others his glory? Do you get up in the morning with an eagerness to go to your job because you're doing the Lord's work? That is, you're working in a way that will honor Him. Do you trust that as you look to Jesus and go to your workplace, He's going to work through you and your example to show His glory to others? Is that what you're driven by? Or do you go to work out of a lust for material gain? Are you motivated by the paycheck and the possessions you can get with it? Which has your heart? The things of this world or the things of God? You cannot serve two masters. Which is your master? Let me very briefly mention the other remedy and we're done. God helps protect us against this temptation to greed and lust for material wealth through the gift of the local church. God has called Christians to be together, to live their lives together, to have real relationships with one another. And part of this living our lives together in fellowship with one another means caring for one another and being concerned about the needs of one another. And thus God has placed us together so that we will see one another's needs and be instruments in His hands of meeting one another's needs. And dear friends, it is hard for me to spend $200 on that new thing when I know that I have a brother or sister in Christ who can't afford their medicine. It ought to be difficult for us to spend money glibly, wastefully, unthoughtfully if we are in real fellowship with others who have very real needs. What do we see in the early church? All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. In Jerusalem, as people were being saved, many suddenly became convicted that they owned too much. They could not continue possessing all that they had while their brothers and sisters were in need. They were committed to one another. They were committed to helping one another follow Christ. And that meant, at times, being generous with their possessions. Acts 4, 34, 35. There was not a needy person among them. Can that be said about here? There was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. The point is that coming to know the Lord Jesus should have a radical effect on the way we handle our money and possessions. Before we knew Jesus, we may have been stingy and greedy and close-fisted with the things that He gave to us, but now having found something so much better, We are quicker to give for Jesus' sake to bless His people. We're told that this was a huge witness in the first centuries of Christianity that many came to hear and believe the gospel because they were overwhelmed with how they saw the Christians caring for their own poor. Have you ever considered that the poverty of your Christian brother or sister can be a means of grace in your life to wean your heart off the love of materialism? you ever considered that so then as we have opportunity let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith galatians 6 10 so justin i want to be like that i want to be generous i want to be free from the love of wealth but how Dear friend, apart from Jesus Christ, it will never happen. It is only through Christ that we can do all things. Christ stands ready and able to pardon us for all of our greed and materialism in our hearts. He stands ready to pardon and forgive. He stands ready and able to deliver us from captivity to greed. He will work through His Spirit to make us the kind of people we ought to be with the hearts of love and generos- generosity and compassion, the heart of God himself. But it all comes only when we are willing to acknowledge our desperate need for him. And we go to him in faith and say, Jesus, I can't do this. You are my only hope. Forgive me for my wicked, greedy heart. Will you come in? Will you come, Lord Jesus? Will you make me like you? I need you for forgiveness, and I need you for change. And so I throw myself upon you. All that come to Christ, He will by no means cast away. So let us all run to Christ this morning for His mercy and for His help. Let's pray. Perhaps this morning this this message has exposed something in your own heart. Something you know shouldn't be there. Perhaps you are.